Hello out there, all you entertainment lovers. I'm your host, Caton Berry, and I would like to welcome you to the very first episode of Movies and Things, which is my brand new podcast that I've created where uh, we're going to just talk about uh, all things related to movies, television, pop culture, whatnot. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So like I said, my name's Caton Berry, and this is the very first episode of the podcast, so I'm still trying out a lot of things here, so give me, cut me some slack here. Basically, I think what I want to do first is give you guys kind of a general layout of what to expect for this episode, and then uh, I might do this, you know, I'm still experimenting with the format a little bit here, but I think for each episode, what I'll do is I'll start off with an intro and then give you guys kind of... Um, a layout for what to expect for the rest of the program. So what we've got on the agenda for today is so um, first I'm going to talk a little in depth about uh, two movies that I've seen recently, Dumbo and then Shazam. Um, I saw them both recently and like I said, uh, you know, I, I review movies all the time on my website and I want to kind of bring that to audio form so um so we're gonna spend some time coming up talking about those two movies i hope you'll give that a listen and then after that kind of the uh, the main attraction for this episode um i'm going to be talking about my five favorite disney movies as some of you may know i'm a huge disney file as they say Uh, i love their movies TV shows, cartoons, whatever. Um, And, you know, I'd love to go work for them one day as a screenwriter. So uh, the later half of this episode, we're going to focus on my five favorite Disney films and why I, not necessarily why I think they're the best of all of them, but why they are my personal favorites, what they mean to me, and why I think they're some of the best Disney has to offer. So with that said, I thank you for tuning in to our inaugural episode of Movies and Things, Um, and I hope you guys will uh, enjoy the ride. All right, so first things first, let's start off with a couple movie reviews for uh, two films that I saw recently. Uh, Funnily enough, both of them are family films, although one was uh, significantly better than the other. Um, But let's start off with talking about Dumbo. Now, as I said in my introduction, you know, I love Disney. I think they put out a lot of really good products. Um, You know, they made so many of my favorite movies, love their animation movies. Um, with these sort of like live action remakes they've been doing, for me, they've been kind of hit and miss. Um, I've really enjoyed, like, I really enjoyed the Jungle Book. I thought that was actually much better than the original. Beauty and the Beast, on the other hand, was okay. Um, it wasn't uh, a particular favorite of mine. Uh, the remake of Cinderella, I thought was really good. Um... But Tim Burton, who also directed this new version of Dumbo, he also directed the uh, remake of Alice in Wonderland. Now, he did not actually do the remake of the sequel to that, or he did not do the sequel to that movie, but he did the the remake, the first remake. Um, So he also, like I said, he did... He remade Dumbo now for Disney, and I gotta say, I I really hated Dumbo. I thought it was terrible. It might have been worse than Alice in Wonderland. Tim Burton was really not a good choice to direct this film. One thing I will say, even though I didn't like the Alice in Wonderland remake, those visuals that Tim Burton created felt both in line with the original Alice in Wonderland cartoon with their trippiness and whatnot. And they also felt in line with Tim Burton. Um, 
And they try to go for the same thing here, and it just doesn't work. Because Dumbo, with the exception of the pink elephants on parade sequence in the original film, there's nothing really that trippy about it. And so, during the parts of this remake that actually are remaking elements of the first film, Tim Burton feels very restrained. I would honestly say that if you showed me a clip from like the first 30 minutes of this movie and you were to have me guess who directed it, never in a million years I would say Tim Burton because it looks exactly like all these other live action Disney remakes. Nothing about it really stands out as being Tim Burton-y. Um, and with that said, uh, Tim Burton also made the odd choice to not have the animals talk in this movie, which on the one hand, I, I kind of get that because, you know, um, with not having the animals talk, that almost makes it to where you could let the expressions on the animals' faces kind of do the talking for them. And that's fine. I kind of get what they were going for. But the problem is, because they don't have talking animals in this one, a lot of the side characters from the original film that everyone loved are kind of uh, sidelined. And instead, they're replaced by human characters who are just not that interesting, I will say. Um, you've got Colin Farrell playing the father, who's like a war veteran returning back to the circus where his kids live. Um, and most of the encouragement that Dumbo receives throughout the film comes from uh, these two child actors. And the thing is, like, you know, I know they're kids, so, you know, expecting child actors to be phenomenal you know, to be anything Oscar-worthy really is kind of unfair just by design. But the performance that these kids brought in was just so wooden and lifeless that you just, as an audience member, you just don't really care about them that much. And then, so what makes the movie even worse, though, is... So like I said, I'd say about the first third of the film actually actually remakes the original movie. All of the plot beats of that film happen within the first 30 minutes of this remake. And then about 30 minutes in, uh, Michael Keaton comes in as like this big hotshot circus ringleader. Uh, and he's evil and he owns this circus called... Uh, dreamland and basically he wants to bring Dumbo to dreamland um, which is also where he takes where Dumbo's mother winds up um, and yeah that's really that's where the film at least visually speaking becomes more similar to what you would expect from a Tim Burton picture um, and you know admittedly this dreamland theme park it, it does look, um, you know, it looks like Tim Burton. It looks like kind of like what he did with Batman uh, or Batman Returns, rather. And but the problem is Michael Keaton as the villain is just not interesting. He's he's the same kind of like boring villain that, you know, the boring businessman villain that you've seen in every single uh, movie that's kind of like this and he brings nothing new to it at all it's just kind of you know generic and cliche and you know that Dumbo is going to make it out fine um, and so really yeah that just really wasn't that interesting to me um, but you could make the argument okay so you could make the argument that Dumbo you know, obviously, you're not supposed to care about the human characters in Dumbo because Dumbo is the main character, which I agree with. But this film really doesn't because far too much of the film is actually focused on these human characters. 
who, like I said, are just boring and generic. Um, and th- basically, they're there to serve Dumbo. Um, and I'm not going to lie, the animation in this film is god-awful. It, I mean, it looks... I mean, it's not like, you know, dollar bin animation, but the fact that somebody at Disney looked at this animation and approved of it is really just appalling to me. I don't understand how somebody could have looked at this and said, oh yeah, that animation looks great. Um, It's just, it's baffling to me. And somehow when Dumbo actually flies, the animation looks even worse. Uh, His movements don't look natural. And I know he's a flying elephant, so it's not gonna look natural by design, but you would expect it should look natural at least within the confines of it being a flying elephant. And yeah, it it just doesn't. Um, And that really sucks because when you don't have the animals talk and you're trying to, like I said again, let their facial expressions kind of tell you what they're feeling. When the animation on them looks really bad, then it's hard to get invested. And probably the, I will say the biggest um, take, the, the biggest disservice to this film comes from not having the animals talk. And it comes during the scene where Baby Mine is performed. Now, anyone that has seen the original uh, Dumbo film, which like I said, is not one of my favorites, but I recognize it's a classic. Um, you know, that scene where Dumbo's mother sings Baby Mine as a lullaby to him is very loving and soothing, and it almost makes you want to cry if it doesn't make you cry. It's kind of the, uh, it's like how Kermit the Frog sings Rainbow Connection, or how Dorothy in Wizard of Oz sings Somewhere Over the Rainbow. It's just a song with so much emotion and sweetness to it that it you can't help but get invested in it. Um, well, in this version of the film, since the animals don't talk at all, they certainly don't sing. And so when when the point in the film comes where that song is supposed to come in, it's still showing a scene between Dumbo and his mother interlocking their trunks together, which is sweet. But then the song is being sung by one of the carnival members, like off to the side to the rest of the carnies. And while the song itself is actually beautifully sung, it, how it's done in the movie really takes away from the emotional beats that the film is trying to establish. Um, so in short, Dumbo, like I said, I really hated it. I didn't like it. I I think kids will think it's okay, but it's just not something. Let's put it this way. If if you're trying to defend um, Disney with them making these uh, modern day remakes of their animated movies, if you're trying to defend that, this is not the film to show as evidence. Um... On the flip side of that, though, let's transition to a film I really liked, and that was Shazam. Uh, Yeah, uh, Shazam was an awesome movie, I will say. Um, You know, as some of you might know, it's Shazam is part of what they're calling, what DC is calling the DC Extended Universe, which is kind of their attempt to create a cinematic universe similar to how Marvel has done and DC's attempts at doing this in the past uh have not been very good with the exception of Wonder Woman which was phenomenal um Batman versus Superman everyone seems to agree was a massive disappointment Justice League wasn't very good um Suicide Squad was a movie that I actually enjoyed, but not a lot of other people did. Aquaman, a lot of people seem to like that movie. I really did not. Um, 
So going into Shazam, I honestly, I wasn't really that sure of what to expect because, you know, I am a really big fan of comic books. I'm a big fan of the Shazam character. I've read countless, countless issues um, of, of stories starring him. And I gotta say, at first, I was really concerned when I found out that Zachary Levi was cast as him because that just didn't really seem to go with the Shazam that I had really grown to uh, be familiar with from the comics. But after seeing this film, I, I really see what they were going for. They weren't really going for something that was... I mean, it's true to the comics in a sense, but they're clearly here going for more of a lighthearted comedy. I would say this film falls somewhere between like Ant-Man in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe with elements of uh, 80s movies like Big and uh, The Goonies, Gremlins. It has, even though it's set in modern day, it has a very... 80s movie kind of vibe to it which is really good because you know previously in a lot of these DC movies they've tried to go the route of just having everything be dark and disturbing and just honestly not that fun to watch well this movie thank god uh kind of resets all that um DC is now taking a much more light-hearted approach to their films which is something that I really applaud because they really needed it um and like I said Zachary Levi he he really carries the film basically without giving too much away what happens in the movie is so it's about a uh orphaned uh young boy named Billy Batson and he kind of he travels from foster home to foster home um and none of these foster homes, he doesn't really ever stay at these foster homes too long because he's kind of on the search for his mother, who he hasn't seen since he was a little kid. And then, so at one point he finds a foster home that he actually does like and is accepting of him, but he doesn't stay there very long. Um, and he does eventually... Once he finds out exactly where uh, his mother lives, he does actually set off to go find her. Um, but through the events of this film, he find, he kind of learns that sometimes the family you imagine isn't necessarily the family you get. And of course, he does this also after coming across a magical wizard who gives him the ability to turn into an adult superhero. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it's, it deals with serious subject matter in a lighthearted way that doesn't feel like it's trying to undercut the seriousness of the topic. Um, and yeah, I mean, I will say you'd feel like with just those two elements working off of each other that this would be a very kind of disjointed film but it's really not a lot of and a lot of that uh kind of rests on Zachary Levi because when he actually um so when he when it's a little kid um Billy Batson is played by a kid actor named Asher Angel um and then he has a friend whose uh, character name I forget but he's played by Jack Dylan Grazier who is in um Stephen King's It, the remake of that from a few years ago. Um, but when he's older, when he's a full-grown superhero, he's played by Zachary Levi. But he's still a, like a 14-year-old kid in a grown man's body. So that's kind of where the elements of Big come into play. Um, and Zachary Levi, he has such an innocence about him that really um, helps make that transition cohesive. You really believe that it's a 14-year-old in a grown man's body. You don't think it's a 14 you don't think it's a grown man acting like a 14-year-old or trying to act like one. Um, which honestly can be very difficult to, to pull off. Um, 
but Zachary Levi, I mean, he there's a sense of youthfulness about him. I mean, not even just in this, but in Chuck, if you ever saw that um, TV show he was on, or, you know, he was even the voice of uh, Flynn Rider in Tangled, so he's proven himself to be very multi-talented, and he really brought his A-game here. Um, but what I really love, actually, well, before I say that, I'll, I'll mention one thing that I'm kind of on the fence about when it comes to Shazam, and that's the villain. Um, so the villain is basically this guy named uh, Savannah. That's kind of the name he goes by. He kind of he has powers as well, and he crosses a similar path uh, to Billy Batson, uh, who again is Shazam. But the difference is, whereas Billy chose not to give into the darkness. Uh, Savannah went the opposite route and he uh, chose to embrace the darkness Um, and so that's kind of how he got his powers Um, which is interesting enough but once he once Savannah gets to be like an older man uh, basically he just becomes like a Lex Luthor knockoff now granted what makes him a little more interesting is that he can summon this sort of like demon army, which um, sounds a little out of place again at first, but when you watch the film, it almost having these demons and these creatures, and it feels a little bit more kind of like gremlins or goonies or something like that, which I really like. The problem is um, Mark Strong, who plays Savannah, it just feels like he's playing Lex Luthor. There's really nothing about um, uh, his performance that, I mean, even down to the bald head, he just feels like a Lex Luthor copycat. Um, uh, I will say, uh, if you ever saw the first Ant-Man movie, Corey, uh, Corey Stoll, I think his name was, who played Yellow Jacket, it was the same thing. It was like he was playing Lex Luthor. Um... But with that pushed aside, what I love about Shazam is the story and the heart that it has. Um, this is the kind of thing DC does really well. These like really personal stories that have a really good message and mean it behind them. You know, the setting up the connected universe and stuff, they've kind of proven they can't really do that. But... These personal stories are where DC has always really shined. Even, and this is speaking from a fan of comics, even from a comic book perspective, I think that's the case. Um, What's great about here is this film really talks a lot about foster children and about the troubles that they go through. And I have seen so many family films and superhero movies and comics and whatnot And never have I really seen that topic addressed that much. Um, And, you know, it's so rare that you see a movie for families or for kids, however you put it, that teaches kids that it is important to sometimes embrace the acceptance of others that at first you think may not be the cool kids or, you know, it's important to accept others as they are and to be more open. Um, Because sometimes, again, like I said earlier, the moral of the story is that the family and the friends that you think you might get may not be what you wind up getting. You might get something that isn't what you want but it's something that could actually be better. Um, and that's just a very... When you, when you really stop and look at it, that's a very, very advanced concept to teach small children. It is. Especially talking about... Especially when you're talking to kids who come from parts of the world or families that maybe aren't so privileged. Um, and so the fact that this movie... Um, kind of went a step further than a lot of these other films to reach out to people and kids like that um, 
it's you know you got you got to commend DC for that. They've recently, you know, like I said, DC has been in kind of a slump with some of their movies recently. Um, for most audiences, though, Aquaman kind of steered DC in a more positive direction. I wasn't that sold on Aquaman, but with this film, DC has 100% embraced the more positive and fun side of their stories while still not being afraid to get dark um, at times where it's appropriate. It's a thing called balance. And whereas a lot of their earlier films in this series um, in the DC Extended Universe really suffered from either being too dark or, yeah, I just, there's nothing else to it. It's they were a lot of them were too dark, and you know they didn't know when they they didn't seem to know that yes you can also have fun in these dark gritty movies. So this movie kind of goes the opposite. It it's mostly lighthearted, but it has a healthy amount of dark stuff in there as well that makes it you know a fun superhero movie. Um, but what I can say about Shazam is. It's honestly, even though it's PG-13, it does have a few swear words. More so than Dumbo, believe it or not. This is like the ideal family film to go see right now, Shazam. Um, and I say that not because it'll just appeal, uh, not just because it appeals to both adults and kids, but because the story itself is about family. Um, almost kind of like how The Incredibles kind of similar to that also about family um and talking about the family dynamic um and that's just a great thing i think for people to see right now um especially with um how will i say this especially considering that like i said a lot of dc's previous movies have been kind of dark and grim um this is a much needed break from that and uh, with Marvel's upcoming film, uh, Avengers Endgame, which is probably going to be pretty dark and grim as well, um, it's nice to see a superhero movie that balances itself out for the good. Um, so yeah, um, so between those two films, uh, between Dumbo and Shazam, if you're going to see a movie this weekend... Don't pick Dumbo. Pick, pick Shazam. Because um, like I said, kids like my Dumbo, okay? They like... they Kids might like Dumbo, okay? Um, but I feel like Shazam is the more well-rounded film, not only in its storytelling, but in regards to the fact that both kids and adults are going to love it. Um, yeah, so those are uh, my thoughts on recent movie releases. Uh, and stay tuned for... Uh, my top five favorite Disney films. Alright guys, welcome back to the Movies and Things podcast. Um, so we're now going to segue into our main topic for today, and that is my top five favorite Disney movies. Now, everybody seems to have their own personal favorites of which Disney movies are the best and I don't think anybody really agrees on what their number one is um but I'm going to be giving my top five because I feel like uh that's something I can give a lot of insight on and before we start with this list though uh, I kind of want to preface this by saying when I say top five Disney movies I mean uh just Disney slash Pixar uh so no Star Wars or Marvel or anything um, that is like technically Disney because they own it. Nothing like that. We're just going for straight up Disney films here. So without further ado, let's start off with my number five choice. And so my number five Disney film is Finding Nemo. Uh, This was one of my favorite animated films as a kid. I really love the story about how Marlin, who, as many of you know, is a overprotective clownfish who uh, loses his son Nemo in the ocean one day, and he has to 
go on a journey with his new friend Dory to find him at a dentist's office in Sydney, Australia. Um, so aside from the kind of bizarre concept, which is what I really gravitated towards as a kid, I really, as an adult, what I can appreciate about Finding Nemo is that the story, or rather the moral, is actually more for adults uh, rather than kids. Um, With that being that Marlin has to learn that sometimes it's okay to essentially not be a a helicopter parent and let your kids loose a little bit. Um, Just because you aren't supervising them every five seconds and being overprotective doesn't mean uh, that something bad is going to happen to them. And that's a really, really good message for parents. Um, like, like I said, you know, it's so rare that you see an animated movie that has a message that is more for the adults than it is the children. And so I really applaud Finding Nemo for that. And of course, when talking about the strengths of Finding Nemo, you can't not mention Ellen DeGeneres as Dory. She might be one of the funniest uh, sidekick characters in animated film that I've I've personally ever seen. Um, what's great about Dory is that even though she forgets things every five seconds, the comedy that comes from that never gets old. Somehow the writing of the film is so clever that every time they work in the a joke where the punchline is she forgets something or she doesn't remember it always kind of works um and so yeah finding nemo it's it's just a great family film all around it's on it's on this list for a reason um so moving on from finding nemo my number four choice is the first uh pirates of the caribbean film which is the curse of the black pearl now, whether or not it's pronounced Caribbean, Caribbean, I, I'm probably going to say it both ways. So, you know, don't hold me back. Don't hold that against me. Um, I, I will honestly say, I know he's a little bit of a controversial star now due to, you know, recent events that have happened in the news. But just talking about the character himself, Johnny Depp does an excellent job of playing Captain Jack Sparrow. This uh, pairing of actor to character is sort of iconic in the same way that Harrison Ford matches with Indiana Jones. There's something about the cool, sort of like suave, but also unkempt performance that Depp gives to Sparrow that it's just so fun to watch. Um, And you really get the sense that Depp is trying to bring the character to life. And he does very successfully. His eccentricities that are usually found in a lot of his films really make Jack Sparrow a much stronger character. And another thing that I really like about this first Pirates of the Caribbean is that with this film, Disney kind of stepped out of their comfort zone in a way that they hadn't really before because uh, before this film, Disney had not really done... Well, I I think this is actually their first PG-13 film. Uh, And if if that's the case, then, you know, good job. This is a good first PG-13 to start with. Um, But in addition to that, this is kind of their first movie that was like a big summer blockbuster type film. Uh, You know, you got to keep in mind, this was before... All like the Marvel and Star Wars and all that stuff. This was before that. So this was them making a big summer blockbuster based on... Well, obviously it was based on a ride that already existed at Disneyland, Disney World. Great ride, by the way. It's one of my favorites. Um, But they... It's amazing because they took a ride that has really no story to it whatsoever. It's just... um, you've been on the ride all you do is get in a boat pirates you know shoot stuff and they drink and they sing you know the yo ho yo ho pirates life for me Um, but there's no real story to it so the fact that they were able to take something 
um, that was a popular, it was, well, it was popular already because the ride was popular, but the fact that they were able to take that ride, again, with no story whatsoever, and craft it into this big budget action film, um, with a story that is actually very well written and very fun to watch, I'm not gonna, you know, give it away here, it's just amazing to me. Now, I'm not gonna talk about the sequels here because, um, you know, the sequels, let's just say they, uh, the series steadily declines in quality. That's, that's all I'm gonna say about the sequels, uh, for this podcast at least. Um, but the last thing I really like about this first Pirates film is actually the side characters. I think, um, Orlando Bloom playing Will Turner and Keira Knightley playing Elizabeth Swan, their romance kind of provides the heart of the film. And I like that because you really actually root for them. Like you really want them to fall in love with each other. And their story isn't necessarily just the whole typical boy falls in love with girl, yada, yada, yada. There's actually um, more weight to it which is actually, again, explored more in the sequels than it is in this one, but they just have really good chemistry. Honestly, the three main leans, uh, Orlando, uh, Kira, and Johnny Depp, they all have excellent chemistry with each other. And I think that that's what, honestly, at the end of the day, in addition to the impressive action sequences and the comedy and the humor, which are great, but the chemistry between these three leads is what really carries the film. Um, so yeah, Pirates, uh, I, love, I love that movie. Um, but we're going to go on to my third choice. Um, and we're going back into the world of animation for this one. And we're heading back to Pixar. That is uh, Monsters, Inc. This is one that I don't actually usually see on a lot of people's top 10 Disney lists, favorite Disney film lists, but this is one that I really like because it speaks to me personally. Um, I love the chemistry between John Goodman and Billy Crystal, who are uh, Mike and Sully. Those are their characters in the film. There's something about watching those two work off of each other that just never gets old. They're sort of a, they're a comedy duo, almost kind of like in the style of like Laurel and Hardy or that sort of thing, uh, where their comedy just comes from them interacting with each other and their differences in personality. And what I love about Sully, so I've always found Sully to, to be very relatable because I'm, you know, I'm a big guy myself and a lot of people may look at me, they think I'm gonna be like some tough guy um, but here I am talking about my favorite Disney movie, so that's obviously not true. And I love the relationship that plays out in the film between Sully and the human character Boo. Some people have gone on to say Boo's annoying, but I think she's adorable. And, uh, and actually an interesting fun fact, a little bit of behind the scenes trivia for those of you who care. So. When they were first recording for Monsters, Inc., the actress who voiced uh, Boo, uh, obviously she was a little child. Her name was Mary Gibbs. And they originally had actual scripted dialogue for Boo to say in the film. As anyone that's seen the film knows, Boo just talks in gibberish the whole time. And the reason that is, is because they couldn't get Mary to sit still long enough to read the lines. So they just recorded her while she was playing. And so those lines that you hear her say in the film are lines that she said while she was actually playing. And that really helps give Boo a sense of playfulness, which is essential to her character because she's a small toddler. And it's so funny because even though that was something they had to do as kind of a plan B, I actually think that that is a much better route to go than having her do scripted dialogue. Um, yeah, and so, like I said, um, another thing I really like about this film is, of course, the animation. It, this is 
one of Pixar's best animated films. Um, not just from a writing standpoint, but also literally from a visual standpoint. There's a scene towards the beginning of the film where Mike and Sully are doing like these training exercise things. And when you see Sully doing these push-ups, you can see every little hair on his body move in sync sync with itself. And you can just, it's almost like you can pluck the hairs yourself. They look so realistic and so convincing that this really was a, a step up not only for Pixar, but for computer-generated animation in general. And so, we're gonna go on to my second choice, uh, my number two pick, and I know I've talked a lot about Pixar on this list so far, and I'm sorry, but that's not gonna change with this number two pick, because it does just so happen that a lot of my top Disney movies are Pixar as well. And so my number two is Toy Story. What can, be, what can be said about Toy Story that hasn't been said before? I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. If the first Toy Story wasn't as good as it is, I don't think we would be getting a, seat, a fourth Toy Story movie uh, later this summer. And the first Toy Story, I think, came out in 1995. Um, And so, as many of you know, Toy Story was actually the first computer-generated animated film. It was before, you know, like I said, before Monsters, Inc., before Shrek, before um, Shark Tale, if anyone ever saw that DreamWorks movie, Finding Nemo, a much better fish movie. Um... So it's innovative just for that alone. Um, and the, what's really great about Toy Story is before it came out, a lot of film experts thought it was going to be a flop because it was such a huge gamble for Disney. Pixar had never made a single movie before. Even the, uh, the test screenings of the original draft of Toy Story went horribly at Pixar. There was, a, there was an original draft where Woody was actually sort of more like the bad guy and he was a ventriloquist dummy. But they, um, they rewrote the script multiple times, which is very, very common in Hollywood. Scripts get multiple rewrites. And that kind of leads me to my second point, is it's just a well-written movie um, for a film that's all about you know toys and make-believe and stuff like that. The, the dialogue that these characters deliver is just, even if it's not as especially deep as some of the later Pixar films were, there's just something about the way the lines are delivered that are just funny and they feel natural. Um, you know, like I love the line where, well, of course, the most famous line is to infinity and beyond. I mean, that's a that's one of those film quotes that has kind of transcended the film that it's come from. Um, every kid knows that catchphrase. Every adult, I think, knows it too now. Um, and then what do you... You know, that's Buzz's catchphrase, but what he also has, you know, there's a snake in my boot, and somebody's poisoned the water hole, and you're my favorite deputy, and all that stuff. Uh, and... Yeah, the the characters in this film are just so strong. Woody, uh, you know, if you've ever been in one of those situations where you kind of feel like you're the apple of somebody's eye and then all of a sudden someone new comes along and all of a sudden you're not the apple of that person's eye anymore, that's very much the same uh, character arc that Woody goes through when Buzz becomes Andy's new toy. Um, And so... Again, a lot of the chemistry, kind of of similar to Monsters, Inc. with Mike and Sully. Uh, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen as Woody and Buzz, they have great chemistry together. Watching them play off of each other and, you know, they can do scenes where they're arguing. They can do scenes where they're getting along. And it's all very believable. Um, The funniest line in the film, 
I think, is um, during the scene where Woody and Buzz get lost at the gas station when Andy and his mother leave him behind. And Buzz starts talking about how he needs to save the planet, yada, 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 still believing he's a real space ranger. And Woody just yells that classic line, You are a toy! That's just uh, that's just funny stuff. And it's still funny to me as a 25-year-old. Um, but in addition to Woody and Buzz, you've also got some great side characters like my favorite is actually Rex, the dinosaur, who's played by Wallace Shawn. That, he's a, you know, he's a timid, he's a T-Rex, but he's so timid, and he's nice, and he's scared of everything, and Wallace Shawn just, there, there was no better voice for that than Wallace Shawn. Then, of course, you got John Ratzenberger as Ham, the piggy bank, who's always hilarious. You've got uh, Jim Varney as Slinky. Kind of the uh, the hillbilly, wisecracking friend that Woody has, and then of course you've got Mr. Potato Head, voiced by the late Don Rickles, and again, this is another case where the actor really matches the character. Don Rickles, his comedy, even stuff that's not clean, there's always a sense of kind of. Anger, but sweetness to it at the same time. Like, you, you see Don Rickles getting mad, and it's funny, but you also kind of feel for him. So, and a lot of that was brought to Mr. Potato Head as well. So, all in all, Toy Story, you've all probably seen it a million times. Know it, love it, hopefully you don't hate it. But whether you love it or hate it, it, it it's here to stay. I love it, a lot of other people seem to love it, so that's why it's my number two. And so, moving on to my number one favorite Disney film of all time. Drum roll, please. Not to add any more tension, but not only is this my favorite Disney film of all time, this is my favorite movie, period. It's my number one favorite movie, and that is The Lion King. I have loved this movie since I was about three years old. And the main reason I loved it so much was so when I was little, you know, my parents got divorced and my dad wasn't around. And so I felt like I could really relate to Simba. Um, Because, you know, as you all know, his father, Mufasa, dies about halfway through the movie. And Simba has to figure out kind of what to do in life now that his father's gone how does he move on you know does he you know just what what does he do on top of that he's got this tyrannic uncle named scar who basically well he's the one that kills mufasa but he convinces simba that simba somehow killed him and so simba runs away and then simba then has to worry about facing his past and does he go back home to save the pride lands it's just a there's a lot going on in this movie and i really applaud it because up until this point and honestly i say up until this point and even up until you know even recent animated films death is not something that is talked about that much in children's films and honestly stuff that is this deep and this personal there's really only a handful of films or animated films that really dig into this subject. And I really applaud Disney for kind of taking a bold move on this. Now, of course, the story is based on Hamlet, so there are parallels. But what I said before still stands. Disney really took a risk here, a very creative risk, and it paid off. Even more funny is that the soundtrack is provided by Elton John. And, you know, you think, oh, it's a movie about lions that live in the savannah. And, you know, you you wouldn't think Elton John would be the one providing the music. But he does. And, yeah, this is one of the best film soundtracks I've ever heard. You've got the iconic songs. You know, you got Circle of Life, uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, Just Can't Wait to Be King. But 
Additionally, something that I feel like something that isn't talked about as much with this film is not just the soundtrack provided by Elton John, but also the film's score, which is like the orchestral music, which is provided by Hans Zimmer. My favorite track on the Lion King album that's orchestral is This Land. It, I believe it's a song that plays during the scene where it's raining in Rafiki's hut and Simba has already been banished. And it's just this deep, emotional, personal music that reflects the scene very well. I, I just, I love that. And then the music that plays at the end when Simba finally makes the climb on the Pride Rock after defeating Scar and takes his place as the rightful king. I believe that that piece is called the Pride Lands. I'm not sure about that though. And the sense of positivity is just, it's just overwhelming in that final, those final, you know, two or three minutes of the film. And it's, it closes, the music of the film closes how it began. It's epic. It makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel like you, like you as an audience member have triumphed along with Simba. And for a film that is mostly about death, it's funny that it can actually, that through its uh, orchestral score and the writing and the jokes and the music, it's neat to see that even though it's really mostly about death, it still leaves viewers with a positive vibe. That's very difficult to pull off, in my opinion, and that's really a sign of good writing. And again, like I said with Toy Story, I, I just love the characters in this movie. I love Simba, I love Nala, Rafiki, Pumbaa, Timon, Mufasa, uh, Kiara is actually the name of the baby that Nala and Simba have at the end. I love Zazu, I love Scar, I love... Uh, Banzai, Shinzi, and Ed, who are the three hyenas. Uh, yeah, I can name I can name so many of these characters. Sarabi, so that's Simba's mom. This is just an all-around great, great film. And I have no problem not only putting it at the top of my top five uh, Disney films, but also at the top of my favorite films in general. It's my favorite movie of all time. I'm not saying it's the best movie of all time. I'm just saying it's my personal favorite. And so with that, I think that is a great place to end this portion of the podcast. Thank you all uh, very much for tuning into the new episode. I'm curious to see what you all think of it. Please, uh, you know, reach out to me on social media if you can. Uh, You can find me again. My name's Kate and Barry. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I've got a website, kateandberrywriting.com. I'm really curious to see what you guys kind of think of this podcast and how I can make it better. Um, so if you made it this far to the end of the episode, again, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'll talk to you guys again really soon. Love you guys. Bye.